How many of you have seen Star Trek The Next Generation? If you haven't, I recommend it. Both the show and the movies are sometimes a mixed bag as far as quality goes, but when Next Generation hits, it hits hard. I could prattle on about how much I love this show and why, and I may do so in a Disc 2 episode someday, but there is a specific reason I'm bringing this up now. In the series finale, an omnipotent alien takes the hero of the show, the brave captain of the Starship Enterprise, back in time to Earth before life had developed. It's a wasteland, full of toxic fumes and lava, but in it there is a small pool of slime. Come here! There's something I want to show you. You see this? This is you. I'm serious. Right here. Life is about to form on this planet for the very first time. A group of amino acids are about to combine to form the first protein. The building blocks. (laughs) Of what you call life. Strange, isn't it? Everything you know. Your entire civilization. It all begins right here in this little pond of goo. Everything we know, our entire civilization, all from a little goo. A place where two small things, little amino acids, combine to become something a little bit more, which eventually leads to the colorful vibrancy of life. We've been looking into a little pond of goo ourselves here on the History of Film, the simple animations of Charles-Emile Renard, Emile Cole, James Stuart Blackton, have all been like amino acids, important in their own right, but far from Bambi or Howl's Moving Castle. Today, though, all of these early achievements of animation filmmakers are taken up and advanced in such a way that it would be possible to imagine the quote-unquote real beginning of animation here. Indeed, many general film histories do cite Windsor McKay, the subject of today's episode, as the beginning of animation. So let's see for ourselves what kind of art emerges from this goo. This is the 30th episode of the history of film, Animation Before the Dinosaur. My friends, No story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. Tonight, we write another chapter in that story. Zenas Windsor McKay the child who would grow up to be one of history's greatest animators, was born in Spring Lake, Michigan on the 26th of September, 1871. Or he wasn't. 
McKay himself claimed Michigan as his birthplace, while later biographers insisted that he was actually born in Canada in 1867, though the difference of a few years and a few hundred miles make very little difference in his biography, as far as I can tell. What really matters, and what both he himself and later biographers do agree on, is that, as a child, McKay loved to draw. There is even a story of when McKay discovered his love for visual art. As the tale is told, a fire raged through the town of Springfield, Michigan. The McKay family fled its destruction, taking shelter with a neighbor out of the fire's path. While the whole family was safe, their home was destroyed. In the aftermath of the disaster, on a freezing night, the child McKay picked up a nail sitting on his neighbor's windowsill and began to draw the nightmarish scene of his home burning to the ground. Etching it into the frost coating the inside of the window, carving fire out of the ice. Such a highly cinematic scene, so rich in symbolic resonance, strikes me as a tad mythological, as such auspicious events often are, but it is the family story of how Windsor McKay began his artistic career. From that frosty night onward, McKay was hooked. He was an artist. McKay's genuine love of drawing, which he developed so early, appears to be the primary motivator for the rest of his career. Describing his own life, McKay wrote, quote, The principal factor in my success has been an absolute desire to draw constantly. I never decided to be an artist. Simply, I could not stop myself from drawing. I drew for my own pleasure. I never wanted to know whether or not somebody liked my drawings. I drew on walls, the school blackboard, old bits of paper, the walls of barns. Today, I'm still as fond of drawing as I was when I was a kid, and that was a long time ago. McKay's childhood is fascinating and full of stories that conjure up an image of a charmingly precocious boy who was always looking for more to draw. In the interest of time, though, we'll skip over that and rejoin McKay when he enters young manhood. After a brief stint making posters for traveling circuses and carnivals, which may be one of the coolest jobs I have ever heard of, McKay married a young woman named Maude DeFore, with whom he would raise two children. At the same time, he began his tenure as an in-house cartoonist for a newspaper in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was here that he first found success publishing a comic strip, a parody adaptation of the work of writer Rudyard Kipling. His work soon attracted the attention of a publisher of popular New York newspapers who moved McKay and his young family to the Empire State around 1903. It was in New York that McKay would find his greatest success as a newspaper illustrator. McKay's time in New York was artistically productive. In 1904, he would begin publishing a recurring strip called The Rare Bit Fiend, chronicling the surreal and often frightening dreams of a recurring character who indulged his love for the dish Welsh rarebit, even though it always gave him outlandish dreams. It was also in New York 
that McKay would produce his greatest pre-animation achievement, Little Nemo in Slumberland, beginning in 1905. Little Nemo in Slumberland was published weekly and chronicles the dreamed adventures of the titular Little Nemo as he explores the world of Slumberland before being awakened at the end of each page. Nemo encounters a cast of recurring characters, including Slumberland's own king and princess, a clown named Flip, and, unfortunately, a blackface caricature of an African child described as a cannibal named Itchy. Even the otherwise stunningly beautiful panels of Slumberland are marred by the sheer pervasiveness of a deeply harmful racist characterization, and that's sad. Nemo's adventures take him through panels that differ radically in their shape and layout, featuring intricate architecture depicted at incredible angles, impossible creatures, and stunning pastel colors. On a visual level alone, Many of these panels are among the most beautiful pieces of illustration I've ever seen. When looking at them, you can tell that McKay enjoyed his work. By returning to the theme of dreams, he could draw whatever he wanted, and took his time. Designing a North Pole modeled after the Tsar's palace in Russia or lakes full of cranberry sauce, or a turkey big enough to swallow a house, actually swallowing a house. I'll put images of some of these strips on the website, so you can take a look at them yourself. I cannot describe them in a way that will show all the care, detail, and creativity on display here. Of necessity, that means I'll also have to put up some of the images containing the blackface character Itchy. I'm sorry that there's no way to get around the most hurtful parts of history, even those infesting some of the parts that would otherwise be among the most beautiful. Little Nemo in Slumberland was a huge hit. I mean gigantic. The newspaper comic sold buckets of merchandise and was even adapted into a stage musical that ran over 100 shows. With all this newly minted notoriety, McKay began to explore different avenues of expanding his career as an artist. One avenue was the obligatory vaudeville run that essentially every early filmmaker in the United States seems to have participated in at the beginning of the 20th century, but it is the other way that we are really interested in. It was after Little Nemo's successful life as a print comic that McKay began to show interest in making his drawings move. There are two different stories about how McKay began his first animation project. Both, to me, sound like they are likely true. The man himself claimed that he began to be interested in animated drawings when he saw his son playing with a flip book published in a New York newspaper. Apparently, this encounter with short animation interested him in the prospect of making longer animated films. If this is true, I personally would imagine it was one of many important factors that would have pushed McKay into making animated drawings. 
As animation historian Charles Solomon pointed out in his book Enchanted Drawings, The History of Animation, McKay's drawings in Nemo are so filled with the suggestion of motion, slight changes in the positions of characters or changes in perspective, that he had likely been thinking about animation for a considerable length of time before his fateful encounter with the flipbook. The other, and still likely true, story of how McKay began his work as an animator is because of a dare of sorts. The story goes that a fellow cartoonist suggested, in jest, that McKay produce thousands of drawings and show them as a movie, an idea that McKay took seriously as a means of making his already popular vaudeville act even more enticing to potential audience members. McKay would set to work, and in April of 1911, would exhibit his short, Little Nemo, to vaudeville audiences. Little Nemo has a plot that, if you listen to the last 60 seconds or so of this here podcast, should sound quite familiar. It goes like this. The popular artist Windsor McKay is having a drink with some friends. During this convivial evening, McKay entertains his comrades with a display of his skilled quick-line drawing, recreating three of the principal characters from his Little Nemo cartoon strip in long fluid strokes of his pen with plenty of India ink. Entertained, one of these fellows, apparently, dares McKay to make a movie out of photographs of his drawings. McKay accepts, promising to produce 4,000 drawings in only one month's time. After a cut, we see that McKay has ordered huge barrels of ink and massive quantities of drawing paper, labeled for our convenience, to be hauled into his office at Vitagraph Studios. After some shenanigans involving a boy worker knocking down some drawing paper, the moment finally arrives. McKay shows his animated film. The camera dollies in to focus on a drawing of Flip the Clown, a character from Little Nemo, as it is inserted into a wooden frame to keep it perfectly still. In a flash, and in brilliant hand-painted color, we see the drawing spring to life. The clown turns, rolls, and tumbles using incredibly smooth animation and has an amazing simulation of depth, far from the flat line drawings we've seen created by earlier filmmakers. The clown is joined by Itchy, and after a bit of playful fighting, Nemo himself appears. He magically makes his comrades stretch and shrink like their images are being reflected in funhouse mirrors. After dismissing his friends, Nemo takes a pen in hand and draws the Princess of Slumberland into existence. They both turn and walk out of the way of a massive green dragon, who opens their mouth to reveal chariot seats. Nemo and the princess set off into the distance in the mouth of the dragon. Itchy and Flip soon reappear in a car, before it explodes and they land on an old man who I'm sure is familiar to people who know the Nemo comics well. The camera dollies out to reveal McKay's thumb on the paper. It was drawings after all. You would be forgiven for forgetting that.
Okay, so there is a lot of impressive stuff going on here. Let's talk about the technical aspect of how McKay actually made the film, and then let's describe some of the artistic innovations we see on display in Little Nemo. Several of the innovations McKay used to make his film would go on to become standard practice for the next century of hand-drawn movies. Just as Emile Cole's paper drawings allowed him considerably more freedom than Blackton's chalk drawings, McKay took it all another step forward by drawing his images on translucent rice paper, which would allow him to see the previous frame of animation underneath the frame he was currently drawing. This allows for very subtle changes from frame to frame and is partially responsible for the incredibly smooth movement that's on display by every character and object in the film. It should come as no surprise that keeping the previous frame visible on the drawing surface an animator is currently working on remains standard practice for hand-drawn animation to this day. Another factor that contributed to McKay's buttery smooth animation was his use of a bioscope to check his work's smoothness and fluidity while he was making it. A bioscope is a kind of advanced flipbook on a hand-cranked wheel or shaft which exploits persistence of vision in much the same way a camera and projector does. Though it was invented by our friend W.K.L. Dixon after he left Thomas Edison, apparently McKay made his own, and it allowed him to preview the quality of his animation before final photography. We also see in the movie itself that McKay has a fairly sophisticated system of making sure that his animations were recorded smoothly. In the film, we see that each individual drawing is made up of a frame of animation which was attached to boards to keep their position locked in place. Each of these boards would be slid into a wooden frame, allowing each drawing to be mounted in exactly the same position as the drawings that came before it. This physical continuity was further secured by small plus or cross-symbol drawings in the corners of each frame. All of these physical innovations would create the most basic technical foundation for how all animation would be committed to film before the advent of digital filmmaking more than half a century later. As for Little Nemo's artistic achievement, where do we begin? Perhaps most obviously, this is the first hand-drawn animated film that we've seen with any kind of coloring. In many ways, it's the first hand-drawn film that we've seen that has color as a possibility. The other movies we've looked at in our animation series have either been drawn on a blackboard or printed in negative, perhaps to retain the blackboard effect. The bulk of these images were so dark that they simply wouldn't take color, even if the filmmakers wanted to put it there. But Little Nemo was drawn on white paper and printed in positive. Nemo was not color washed like we saw in The Vampires, nor did it have slight overlays of color painted onto grayscale images of live-action actors, as we've seen since pretty much the beginning of the show. Instead, the hand-painted colors sit on an image that is almost entirely white, allowing them to be projected with remarkable variety and vibrancy. This film is the most outstanding work in color that we have seen so far, and is the first of many animated films that will break new ground in color, 
a tradition that continues to this day. As for the actual drawings we see in this film, all of them do something remarkable. They turn. In the work of James Stewart Blackton and Emil Cole, their drawings were completely two-dimensional. Blackton would draw faces on a blackboard who would grow a mustache, and Cole's figures would change shape, but the characters they created never gave the illusion of occupying physical space. Almost immediately in Little Nemo, characters turn to face the camera and to face away from it. They tumble over themselves, giving the illusion of a three-dimensional body. They shrink and grow as they appear to run toward or away from the camera, creating a theoretical plane of movement and perspective. In short, this is the first hand-drawn animated film that we have seen, which simulates the conventions of real optics. Finally, as far as I'm aware, this is the first animated film adaptation of an already known literary character. We have, of course, seen books and plays and even newspaper comics adapted for the screen, but Little Nemo represents the first animated adaptation of a non-filmic source material. This is a cool first, and is yet another example of how film is dependent on other forms of media while it simultaneously influences them. After his thousands of drawings, and at the end of his monumental effort, Windsor McKay wound up with the most technically and artistically sophisticated animated film yet produced. He took it on the road, and people didn't get it. When Little Nemo came out, there was practically no animation yet in existence, and what little was there were simple line drawings with rigid movements, or stick figures moving fluidly but in a distinctively unnatural manner. Most audiences had never seen the kind of fluidity in McKay's animation, even in live-action motion pictures. So, it's understandable then that many people thought that that's what they were looking at. According to the already-mentioned Charles Solomon, many people thought that McKay was using some kind of trick photography to make his film look as though it were composed of drawings, while live-action actors were actually being filmed like usual. I personally find this hard to believe. The drawings in Nemo are pretty clearly drawings, and their movement, while naturalistic, is not completely realistic. The Funhouse Mirror segment is a good example of that. Whether or not this misunderstanding was completely true, the fact remains that Little Nemo didn't make quite the splash McKay expected it to when he first added it to his repertoire of vaudeville exhibitions. Undeterred by Nemo's tepid reception, McKay made his next film, How a Mosquito Operates in 1912, a creepy little narrative film in which a mosquito sucks too much blood from a sleeping man until it explodes. We won't talk about it too much because, aside from the fact of it being a narrative film, there isn't much innovation on display here that we haven't already covered in Nemo. Mosquito does have early examples of animation loops. When images are drawn in such a way that a single action can be used multiple times or photographed in reverse to make it look like an action is happening backwards. These animation loops make up the bulk of classic episodes of Scooby-Doo and are at the heart of repeating internet GIFs today. Aside from that, and the obvious smoothness and attention to detail we see in the animation, there isn't much more to say. But it doesn't impress all too much now, and, unfortunately for Windsor McKay, it didn't seem to impress too much in 1912. Apparently, again, as hard as it is to comprehend, 
there were some people who just didn't believe that it was drawn. While I'm sure that the reception of Mosquito was disappointing to McKay, he didn't quit. He couldn't, I think, because his transformation was complete. He now wasn't just a cartoonist, he was also a filmmaker, and was determined to make something so charming, so enjoyable, and so impressive, that anyone who saw it would be forced to recognize the quality and originality of his animated films, and no one could claim that it was some kind of trick live-action photography. It all came to a head when he set to work making a film about a character named Gertie, set when dinosaurs ruled the Earth. Thank you so much for listening to the 30th episode of the History of Film. I would like to give a special thank you to Charles Solomon, whose book, Enchanted Drawings, A Brief History of Animation, was the principal source for this episode. This book was published in 1989, but still packs a punch. Charles Solomon is still working, so check out his newest publications about animation from Europe and Japan. He is a great writer. My favorite fact that didn't make it into the show this week is that the person who directed the live-action opening of Little Nemo is none other than James Stewart Blackton, and reminds me just how small the world of filmmaking was at the beginning of the 20th century. Heck, it's still small, I think, all things considered. A special thank you to all of the patrons of the show who helped make this podcast happen. If you would like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com forward slash historyoffilm to contribute a small monthly donation. There is also a Discord server for the show, and I have a link for that at the bottom of the episode description. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so by emailing historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com, and you can visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, for resources on this and other episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and join me next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film. <laughs>